Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here, and I welcome you to this uh, Wednesday night program that's now been going on for many, many, many years. And we will be talking about how to find the courage to face your fears when you're needing to deal with also the challenge of being comfortable with your patterns and routines. This class is dedicated in honor of Rivka Batleya for a complete Rufur Shlema. May her family have all the strength to give her strength and bear through this and only become stronger in the process. This is a good opportunity to mention that if you'd like to honor a loved one or a memory of a loved one, it's a great way to do so by sponsoring and dedicating a class. Go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. And with that, let us go straight into the topic. Whenever you're dealing with fear, the word fear itself is one of the most debilitating and invisible forces that we need to contend with in life. And because it's invisible, that's why it's so powerful. Because you have one thing, you have an enemy that you look at your, its face and you see this is your enemy, you assess it, and then you can determine what resources you need, what strengths you need, what support you need to be able to deal with that adversary. However, if your enemy is invisible, hiding, and you don't know where they are, you don't know how strong they are, you don't know where they're hiding, you don't know when they will attack, then you're dealing with a complete new set of circumstances that in addition to the being your enemy, you also have no clue what you should be doing to prepare. Which direction should you be looking at? What, how much strength do you need? That is one of its most debilitating forces of that fear creates in our lives. So then we have this paradox, this cast 22, which is how can you develop courage to fight fear and face fear when fear and courage are antithetical to one another. If you had the courage, you wouldn't need to be concerned with the fear. And because you have fear, you can't develop the courage. So how do we get out of that quandary? Now, that's challenging enough. When you throw into the equation other factors that determine the way we make decisions, the way we approach things in life. And in this case, we're talking also our comfort zones, that we're comfortable with the status quo, with our patterns, our routines, to the point that they become like traps. Because once you're there, that's what you're comfortable with. So to make any change becomes even more increasingly difficult. So in addition to fear's power and its invisible force, we now have the issue of our own comforts. And that, the, that combination, the invisible fear and the comfort zone creates a formidable enemy. So the question is, is there hope in such circumstances? And the answer obviously is absolutely yes, unequivocally yes. I don't know if there's a person on earth that does not have to deal with these challenges. We all have our fears. 
Some of us have stronger fears, some have lesser fears, but we all have our fears. Some are fears of the real, some are fears of the imagined, but we have them. We also all have our comfort zones. We have our routines, we have our habits, we have our status quo. <clears throat> so this is something that we need to understand is not unique to any one individual. What may be unique is how, what shape it takes in your life. But the actual, the actual, these actual forces are realities in our lives. Now, of course, there are the usual approaches how to deal with it. We'll begin with the easiest, and the first one is denial. You just avoid the whole thing. You go on with your life. You have your routines. You do your routines. You try to bury all the, any of the, the, the negative stuff. Or you learn to live with it, and you minimize the issues. Now, if someone can get away with that, and it does not in any way undermine their activities, their successes, their commitments, their ability to reach the stars, to develop healthy relationships. So one can make an argument, not all denial is bad. If, if it's enough to keep, to keep away negative thoughts and you can fo focus on your life, I've seen situations we don't have to be uncovering every particular demon in our lives and, and dig up every ghost and every traumatic experience. The problem is when it's, our lives are not working, and the denial includes convincing yourself you're, you're a great success, when the truth is you're not living up to your potential. So this isn't meant to point fingers or to make anyone feel guilty or to make anyone feel demoralized. But that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Because if it indeed is impeding and not allowing you to be the best you can be, and that you're investing so much energy and force and power into fighting these demons, then that can be quite challenging. Because then what happens is you can end up writing yourself off and betraying your own destiny and your own capacity. So that's the denial approach. A second approach is some people just learn to live with misery. They lower the threshold of what their, toler their tolerance threshold and they just are able to tolerate more pain. Sadly, I've seen people like this. To the point where they, could, they com convince themselves or they feel that is for them the natural place. And as a matter of fact, joy and any type of euphoria or any type of um, positive thinking is actually unnatural for them. So that's option two. I think I don't have to explain why that option is not necessarily the one we should be pursuing. There are times we need to tolerate things, but to live a life like that, why would you, why would you write yourself off that way? Why resign yourself to that? The third option is to go to war. You go to war with these forces, and you're in a battle, you're, you're in a battle mode to fight fears, to fight those that cause you to have fears, and you become sometimes a very, okay, very aggressive, or passive-aggressive, but some form of aggression where you are battling these forces. And your life becomes one of battle. Is that an option? For some, that becomes the option. And they almost thrive on the battle, on confrontation, on uh, critique, finding what's wrong with others, sometimes finding what's wrong with themselves. It's a battle, a battle mode. I want to introduce another approach which may even sound initially 
somewhat radical. But I believe that when the case is made, you'll see it's an absolutely brilliant approach. And it's actually derived from the period in time in which we are right now in the calendar. So though we are now in the nine days and leading up to the Saturday day in the Jewish calendar called Tisha B'Av this Saturday, because of its Shabbos, it will be, the fast will be pushed off and postponed to Sunday. So even though it's quintessentially Jewish, but as some of you are familiar with the classes I give in many of my writings, these Jewish sources offer us universal life skills and profound psychological insight that can help us deal with the challenges of our lives. And that's what I'll be focusing on. How this period of time, which on one hand is very dark period, the darkest period in the Jewish calendar, is the time when the first and second temple were destroyed. The wall around Jerusalem was breached basically three weeks from coming this Saturday, from, back, past, from this Saturday, three weeks back, on the 17th of Tammuz, the Hebrew month of Tammuz. Three weeks later, it was burned down, first by the Babylonians, temple number one, and then by the Romans, temple number two. And many other sad events have happened in this period of time. So looking at how one deals with sadness and how collectively it's addressed by the sages and the mystics, I'm submitting, can teach us tremendous lessons in dealing with our own saddest moments, with our own darkness, with our own abyss, with our own fears, and with our own traps, each in our own way. So to sum up again, there are different approaches when something, when you hit the abyss. One is, as I said, denial. Another is you just learn to live with it and you learn to say, well, you know what, darkness is my, my old friend. And you get accustomed to it. Or you go to war, you go to battle. There doesn't seem to be another option, right? But there are. And the key here is that we're going to enter into the abyss. Now, in the description of the class, we sent it out today, I immediately got a response from somebody that wrote to me, what do you mean? I rewrote, please join myself in this talk and learn how to enter into the dark abyss where our fears reside and into the crevices where our comfort zones hold us hostage and come away with greater strength than ever. So someone wrote to me, what do you mean? We're going to enter the abyss? Why would you want to enter the abyss? Don't we usually learn how to avoid it? How to escape from it? How to not be trapped by it? You have a point. But my point is, as I continue to read, fear and habits contain enormous energy. That's what we're going to be talking about. In other words, the abyss and darkness is not just a void. It actually has tremendous amount of energy. Think of a black hole. The black hole is so powerful it doesn't allow light, the gravitational pull of the black hole, was of the star called the black hole, is so intense and so powerful, it doesn't allow light to escape. Darkness should not, be deceive, should not deceive us into thinking that it's just blasé, that it's just neutral. Fear, as I mentioned before, is a powerful force. However, the force is one that is inverted and imploded. It's an imploded energy. And that's why it can entangle us in its contorted tent tentacles. So the key here is to realize 
that with how to tap into that power, how to harness it, how to convert and transform it into positive energy that can help us grow and reach unprecedented heights. That is how we're going to be addressing this. So, of course, this takes us into a big question, a philosophical question and a psychological question. What is the nature of darkness? And when I say darkness, I don't just mean physical darkness, but also psychological and emotional darkness. So there are actually two opinions about darkness among the sages. Some say it's only the absence of light, and the proof is very obvious. Bring a little light into a dark room, and it immediately dispels darkness. No effort, no battle, which would suggest that darkness doesn't have any power of its own. Bring light, it automatically dispels. Not like fire and water, enough fire can evaporate large bodies of water, enough water can extinguish great fires. But there's another opinion, that darkness does have substance, meaning there is a force called darkness. In the prayers, we actually say, one who created darkness and the one that shaped light, which suggests there's a creation of darkness, it's actually a force. Think of the black hole. The black hole is not just neutral or absence of light, it's actually a tremendous force, but the force is being drawn within, so the darkness is so dark, not because it's empty, but because it's so powerful, just the energy is going the wrong direction from the perspective of illumination. So, how, so the, But these two opinions about darkness are actually reconciled. And how they reconcile? By saying there's two levels, there's two states, two forms of darkness. For example, when you read about the plague of darkness in the Bible, there it says, they were able to touch darkness. It was so dark they could feel it and touch it. So you could argue that more figuratively speaking, it was so dark, sometimes say it's pitch dark. I could even touch the darkness. Or you can actually say that maybe there was a dimension of darkness that had substance. In science, you can also say there are stages where there's an absence of light. You know, let's say you shut off the lights. So darkness doesn't necessarily have substance. It's just there's no light, so there's a state of darkness. Or you can say there's a darkness like the dark hole, the black hole, or other states that are actually dark energy, dark matter. They talk about a lot lately in science. So the answer is that there's really two dimensions to darkness. Same thing as the psychological and emotional darkness. There's a darkness that's just the absence of light. Think of it like um, ignorance being the absence of intelligence. It doesn't necessarily have a force of its own. Someone's ignorant. They didn't know better. They may be responsible because they should have known, but for argument's sake, there's no malicious effort of an ignorant force at work here. What can happen is, ignorance can lead to uh, maliciousness and malevolence, which is where somebody goes ahead and uses the ignorance and tries to show they're smarter and actually causes damage and destruction. But ignorance per se is the absence of, of, of awareness. So psychologically, emotionally, there are challenges and there are what we'll call adver adversaries, ad ad adversaries that are not particularly a power, but because we are lacking tools, we're vulnerable. Provide someone with the tools and they won't be vulnerable. But then there's a psychological and emotional states where there is actually a force at work. There could be a real, either a person or an experience that has caused trauma. 
And we're not just talking about the absence of something, but there's a force now that has taken hold. And the same thing you can say about fear. There's a fear that's simply a fear of the unknown. And if you really were able to shine the light, you'd be able to see nothing to be afraid of. Like somebody walks into a dark house or walking down a street, door dark street, they're afraid because they don't know what's, what's there. Someone shines a light or the, or, the, or the dawn breaks and you suddenly realize nothing to be afraid of. But then there's darkness and there are forces that are actually, actually do cause us fear for, and, and, fright, and we're frightened of them for real reasons. They're destructive. Ter- they're terrorists. They're enemies. They're thieves, murderers, God forbid. Real forces at work that have a very legitimate reason for us to be afraid of. And you're not sad enough just to shine a light and everything goes away. They're dealing with a real force. So when you're dealing with your own inner demons, it's important to, if you can, to try to figure out which one is which. Because obviously the first dimension is easier to deal with because then it's not a matter of taming or vanquishing an enemy. It's a matter of bringing the light in. You know, they tell the joke about a guy who was having sleepless nights. He couldn't sleep because he was terrified that under his bed he was dreaming and thinking that under his bed there are monsters, demons. And no matter what, when he looked under it, he thought that maybe they're hiding. No matter what anybody told him, he could not get this fear out of his psyche. And he couldn't, let, he couldn't sleep all night. He would be tossing and turning. And every time he'd fall asleep right away, thinking, imagining what's under his bed. So he goes to his psychiatrist, and they begin the process of therapy, psychotherapy, on the couch. And he starts talking about his fears and the demons in his life and his childhood and his mother and his father and his, and his school and his educators and every negative experience. And you can imagine every week he's dishing out money to the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist is listening, and they're exploring. They're trying to find out what's the root of all, this, of all these fears. Anyway, this is costing a, a, a nice bundle. After a while, the fellow meets his rabbi. It's coming to the high holidays. The rabbi says, you know, you give always a nice donation to our synagogue, and we hope you'll give it again this year, maybe with an addition. He says, Rabbi, you know, this year, not this year, I've been spending a lot of money on therapy and really don't have any money to give. The rabbi says, what? What happened? So he told him, he said to him, I'm having these ter- terrible nightmares, ter- terrible fears of these monsters and demons and goblins or whatever, and I can't get it out of my head. And I'm going to this uh, psychiatrist, it's costing me every week $400. So the rabbi gave him a suggestion, a free suggestion. He went home that night, he followed the suggestion, and you know what? First time in years he had a sleepless, he had a, 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 a peaceful sleep. Great miracle. So he doesn't need to go back to the psychiatrist. And yes, he makes his donation to the rabbi. He meets the psychiatrist a little while later, a few months later, and says, what happened to you? You were coming every week. We were making progress. And the fellow said, well, I don't know if we were making progress, but it was definitely costing me money. You know what? My rabbi gave me a little piece of advice, and it's resolved all the issues. What does the rabbi tell you, says the psychiatrist. He says, he told me to cut off the legs from the bed. And that's what I did. And of course, the bed is now on the ground, so no demons and no, uh, and no monsters can get under there. 
That's an example of a fear of an unknown, of an imaginary unknown called the darkness that doesn't exist. No substance. He just needed something to shine the light to show him that there's no way that an animal, can, a monster can get under there. And that's what he did by cutting off the legs. It's impossible for anything to get under there. We wish we can get rid of all problems that easily, right? But then there's a darkness that has substance. And that becomes far more complicated because now you're dealing not with something that's just in your head. It's not just a psychological fear. It also you're dealing with something that actually has a force and a power. But all is not lost. That too can be addressed. And indeed, the way you address that can also help you address the first type of darkness also in a more profound way. Because what I said before is, okay, you shine the light and it's no longer dark. But what about the fear that you had? In this way of thinking, you always want to redeem and you want to transform any negative into a positive. So let's now address this darker, this, this, this approach which is about actually facing the abyss. Now, let me make it perfectly clear. We're not talking about necessarily regressing and going into the deepest, darkest corners of your psyche and every nightmare and every negative experience of your life. That's not necessary. The only reason we sometimes dig deeper is because we need to because we're not resolving the issue in other ways. So I want to make that clear. However, that does not mean that you cannot look squarely at what is at the fear that you're having and not avoid it. So let's go back to the point I made. That's tremendous energy. Just think of how much energy goes into how much energy you invest when you have to deal with adversarial situations. You think about it. The fear can paralyze you. You try to anticipate, you try to preempt all these things, but the bottom line is it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily, you're, you're investing so much energy, it can be very, very draining. So clearly from that you see that there's a tremendous amount of energy there. Besides the energy of the darkness itself, there's the energy that you're investing in it. Imagine if you could take all that energy and turn it into something that's positive. So let's go now back to the three weeks and the nine days that I'm talking about. Here's a situation where really tragic events happened to the Jewish people. And you can include every tragedy in history, including the Holocaust, when you talk about tragic events. How does one deal with tragedy? How does one deal, and I'm specifically taking an example of a real serious tragedy, not just an imaginary fear, but the real killings, real murders, real innocent people in, in mass being, being dehumanized and annihilated. How does one deal with such a thing? Firstly, it's so overwhelming that you can't really even wrap your head around it. Definitely not understand it. And yet you see that there are people who go through experiences like that are in tremendous pain, but they come out in some way deep, more refined, in many ways, even better people than when they entered there. There's an expression in the Bible that says, when the Jews were in Egypt, it says, as they were afflicted and, and suffered and oppressed, in direct proportion to that, they flourished, thrived, and multiplied. 
They say the expression, you don't know how, how strong she is until you put, you don't know, like, like a woman's like a tea bag, you don't know how strong she is until you put her into hot water. So there are situations like hot water that can bring out tremendous strengths in a person. Which you cannot recognize before that dark place. What does that tell you? So the obvious explanation is very simple. Since you're challenged, so you have to dig deeper. As you dig deeper, you find more resources, more strengths. But there's something more to this. There's an expression, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Why? Because once you, once you, as long as you've not been challenged, there's, in a way, there's always the fear that maybe if you were challenged, you'd fail. But once you're challenged and you come through it, and you grow, it takes away real fear because you realize that you cannot be annihilated. Your spirit cannot be annihilated because you went through the fire, you went through hell, you went through the abyss, and yet you're still here and maybe even stronger. That gives you, that itself gives you a strength that allows you to overcome anything because you're not going to terrify me. I've seen the worst. But it goes even further than that. The negative experience itself has two components to it. One is that it's negative, the other is that there's energy there. However, the energy is now trapped in a very negative place. It can be grief, it can be fear, it can be anxiety, it can be depression. So the energy of it is one thing, and there's your experience of that energy. So the question is, can you take the energy and just extract the energy and change the experience? That's the challenge. And the answer is absolutely yes. But this gets back to the philosophical discussion of darkness. If we were to see this universe and life and this world as fundamentally a hostile and dark and foreboding existence, then, you know, it seems natural that we're all going to suffer and we're all going to in some way have pain. And that's a natural state of existence. So the best you can do is minimize the damage control, minimize the pain, minimize it. But you have to face, that's the reality of life. And there are philosophies, there are schools of thought that feel that way. The Jewish way of thinking, which I, again, is a universal way, and it's actually affected the universe, as we shall discuss in a few moments, is no such thing. No. Goodness, beauty, light, courage, these are the natural states of existence. However, they can be concealed. They can be covered up. So the concept of original sin is not acceptable. There's sin that can conceal the inner good, but the inner good never is never annihilated, is never destroyed, no matter what happens. That doesn't mean there's no pain, that doesn't mean there isn't trauma, but there's a layer that's untouched, deep within. And if you know that, for sure, then the aberration is the darkness, and the light is the natural state. So then what is the darkness exactly? So this brings us back to the cosmic symptom. In, in Jewish mystical cosmology, the discussion of the great symptom, that once, that there, that, that, there were, that there is a reality where you have complete seamless truth, integrity, divine consciousness, 
a consciousness of a higher reality. No fragmentation, actually no diversity altogether. It's seamless, shapeless. But then comes a situation, a consciousness that is, emerges due to a great symptom, a great cataclysmic, think of it like a big bang, a black hole, where the light is all sucked out from our perspective. And we don't feel the consciousness, that higher consciousness. The example given for this is of a teacher and a student, where the teacher is conveying ideas, but then if the teacher wants to convey something really, really un unprecedented, really innovative, he pauses, he or she pauses, and is silent. That silence can be perceived by the student as abandonment, but in truth, it's a sound reaching deeper in. So what does the teacher do? He's concealing and contracting and condensing and concentrating all his energy inward with the goal to leave space for the student to be able to be himself. And then the teacher come, come back and bring this new revelation and spoon feed it to him. So the symptom is a so-called momentary form of darkness. But in truth, is it's an energy that's meant to conceal in order to allow for another to emerge and that others should experience that consciousness at their pace and ultimately reunite with the higher consciousness, the pre-symptom consciousness. So when you look at it that way, then the natural state is awareness and is light and is beauty and all the positive things in life. But there's a darkness that comes and conceals all that in order for us to reveal it. So when you think of it that way, then every negative experience in life has evolved from that symptom. Now the symptom is a divine symptom. That is God's doing. On its own, it's not a tragedy because it's concealment. That's all it is. It's like the first level of darkness that I mentioned. It's only the absence of light. But it takes on another shape when we give it credence and we say, oh, you know what? That's the world that we, that, that we see, that we perceive. And that's where we can start doing things that are harmful to each other. And we could do something that's tragic and that's traumatic and abusive and so on. And then the darkness takes on a whole new shape. But even then, it's still a result of a concealment. So the challenge is how do you face this, to face the darkness and to recognize that this is really a challenge to us to figure out how to reveal the light in this dark place. That's a whole different way of, of looking at fear, as well as we'll talk about, as well as looking at comfort zones and routines and habits. We'll talk about that shortly. Now, how has this changed the world? Because we live in a world where once upon a time, the prevailing philosophies was a negative look at this entire universe. Today, in most cultures, there may still be thinkers like that, but there's a general positive attitude that human beings can be good people. And we've shown that we can be good to each other. There's still plenty of injustice and there's plenty in humanity from man to man. But we've also seen the best of mankind, not just the worst. So that means that we could be. It's really a longer discussion. I just wanted to point that, make that point. And this goes back to the quintessential thinking all the way back in the beginning of the Bible where it says that the human being was created in a divine image. So not the id, not Freudian id, 
But the Pintalayid, the spark, the divine spark, the essential goodness of existence and the essential goodness of paradise, the Garden of Eden, and the essential goodness within the paradise within each one of us is the predominant natural place who we are. And that's why you see goodness may take more effort to achieve, but we all gravitate and say, you, you won't find a person on earth except maybe psychopaths and sociopaths that will say to you, no, goodness is inferior to being evil. Children. There's no such thing as an evil child being born an evil child. Children are bubbling, kind, and so on. I mean, they could be selfish. If they're not educated, they can behave ways that are sometimes not appropriate. But naturally, people are good. They only learn the other, experience, the other behavior that's not good from their peers, from their parents, from their adults. So the natural state is good. So then what is this darkness? The darkness is a force. Now once, and I want to clarify something. If a person does something, perpetrates some type of injustice on another, they're absolutely irresponsible. They can't say it's the Tzimtzum stupid, you know, blame the Tzimtzum for it. But nevertheless, from your point of view, if you are the so-called victim, and I don't want to like, I like to use victim, if you're the person on the receiving end of something like that, so yes, that person is responsible. But you still can tap into the negative experience and turn it into a positive. And that's by learning from it, learning to look at it and not be afraid of it, and learning to transform it into some positive energy. You see people who have had terribly difficult lifetime, life experiences, and they take their negative life experience and turn it into a cause, into a crusade, into a war for good. Oh, something negative happened? I will do something to bring more humanity to this world, more nobility, more majesty to the human race. And the same thing on an individual and private level. You have to remember that when you're faced with a real challenge, whatever that challenge may be, you have to remember that there's two parts to it. There's your emotional reaction to it, and there's the challenge itself. The challenge itself has tremendous energy in it, except it's, in a way, being used against you. So you have to realize fear is a natural thing. We don't run away from fear. But remember, that's not the end of the story. Fear is only a step. The next step you have to say is, okay, I've seen a mother, a parent, uh, a sibling, a child suffer. I feel terrible. I feel like out of control. I don't know what I can do about it. I feel helpless. Or you can say, you know, this is a challenge that's come my way. It has a tremendous opportunity here. How I'm going to be a more loving person more strength. I will help other people in similar circumstances. So these aren't just nice things to do. They actually are doing is you're tapping and harnessing the energy of the abyss into something positive. So these nine days, these three weeks, there's in the book of prophets, the prophets, in Scharia and, and other prophets, it speaks about how these days will be transformed to days of celebration and joy, and to holidays. And Maimonides actually quotes it in his Laws of Fasting when he talks about these days, the fasts during this period in time. What does that mean, be transformed? Why not just say it'll be eliminated? Like the expression, God will erase the tears on all face, on every crying face. Eliminate it, annihilate it, get rid of the darkness. No transforming. 
Yohavchu is the word, to transform, to convert. What are you converting? If it's a negative, there's nothing to convert, just get rid of it. But a negative is not just a negative, like I said. There's a darkness that just absence of light, but there's a darkness that has tremendous power. And what you want is not just to get rid of it, you want to transform it, you want to redeem it. You want to reveal its stronger power, and its power can be even stronger than the power of light. Because it takes more energy to create darkness than it is to create light. Like I spoke about, discussed earlier. So that is the ultimate goal here. Now I know we could say this is a lot easier said than done, but no, there are steps here. The first thing is you have to realize, because as I said earlier, the question, the conundrum was, Cash 22, fear and courage are two opposites. So how exactly are you going to get courage when you have fear? Maybe you have to look at the fear in a new way. If fear is indeed a formidable power, then that's it. So of course there's no courage. But if you realize that fear is inverted courage, if you could put it that way, it's an energy that's working against itself and against you and against everything around it, then it's a matter of understanding its value. Remember, fear has value. It is like a warning signal when you're walking in the alone at night or in a situation which may be dangerous. If you didn't have any fear, you were fearless, you could put yourself at great risk. It's like pain. Let's look at pain for a moment. Pain. Nobody likes pain. We have painkillers. We want things to be painless. And yet pain is a sign that your nerves are working. So when you feel pain, whether it's a pain, a physical pain, or we'll talk about psychological pain in a moment, or it's a toothache, or it's another pain in your body, it's a warning signal. If your nerves were not sensitive, they wouldn't warn you, they wouldn't know. Like that stroke victim who was unable to feel anything, was numb for so many months. Every day the doctor would come and feel and touch and stick him one day, the doctor sticks him with a needle and the guy starts jumping. He says, why are you doing that to me? And the doctor is laughing and smiling and so, uh, so it's so, such, such a good spirit. Why? Because till now you haven't felt it. So the fact is that pain, though we don't want it, but pain is a warning signal, a red flag, an alarm clock, basically a wake-up call. That's something, do something about it. So it's warning you before it happens. So pain is not just the absence of pleasure, it's a force. And when used properly, it actually warns you and wakes you up, and therefore you do something about it, and then you get rid of the pain. So it's, it's a deeper awareness of things. It says more knowledge, more pain. The more aware you are, the more possible pain. Some people say, don't give me the knowledge, don't give me the pain. Yes, maybe some of us would prefer that. But that's what happens when you have more sensitivity, more awareness, you're going to feel more. And when you feel more, you're going to be more sensitive and more, more vulnerable to different situations, including the empathy that you have for others. That's yet another thing that sensitivity does. Sometimes it can be overwhelming because you see other people's pain and it's just too much. So better to get rid of the empathy, better to get rid of the sensitivity. The same thing we have to look at is when there's fear. Someone that's fearless, dead people are fearless, obviously. Maybe psychopaths are also fearless. Someone who has no sensitivity is not going to have any fear when it comes to circumstance, situation. Someone, however, that's sensitive and cares and is loving, of course is going to have certain fear and certain concerns around pain, around the pain of loved ones and so on. So you can just shirk away and just, 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 just retreat from the pain. 
Or you can take the bull by the horns and say, okay, this is it. I care and I love and that's why there's fear, there's uncertainty. But that itself is a sign of my humanity, that I care and I'm involved and I'm engaged. I'm not going to run away from this abyss, from this darkness. And on the contrary, I will recognize that I have, that there's a deeper power here going on, that if I tap into it, I can actually transform the fear into a great strength. So psychologically speaking, and this, I don't know how much, probably how much this has been developed in modern psychology, but the idea of tapping into actually negative energy and turning it into positive energy. You have a lot of anger, a lot of grief. Find ways to express it. Sometimes people go exercise, they go boxing, they go take it out in some outer expression. They just release energy because it's a lot of energy. But that's releasing energy. How about harnessing it? You know what kind of power you can do? You can change worlds with grief. You can change worlds with loss. Now, do we all invite that into our lives? Absolutely not. God should bless us all. We should have the minimum of it. We're talking now after the fact. After the fact, you have to realize there's this power. However, as I said, it's energy reversed. And you need to convert it into the positive energy. Now, let's talk a moment about comfort zones, about routines and habits. Yes, our routines and habits are defined by things we are used to, which, of course, traps us, because when we deal with the situation we need to get out of, the routines and habits keep you, their inertia keep you grounded, keep you frozen and paralyzed in where you are. That also seems to be a cash 22. How do you get out of a place when you're comfortable there? So some say you need to hit rock bottom. You need something to shake you out of your comfort zone. And you realize it's like the, the, it's like the path of least resistance. When you realize staying in the status quo in your comfort zone is more painful than not, then you get out of it. Now, I'm not wishing that upon anyone. But the fact of the matter is, when situations in life are challenging and we gravitate toward our comfort zones and our routines and habits, we usually are going to succumb. We may ignore it, but we'll usually succumb to the darkness, and that will become our good friend, and that will become the natural place you you gravitate to. Now, that's not what we want, but nevertheless, you have to know that reality. So what's the other solution? The other solution is, other, not, not the other solution. This solution is not to see it that way. So how does one get out of a comfort zone when they're comfortable there? One is you force yourself. You commit to doing certain things that shake up your system, that force you to do something that you're not comfortable with. I don't mean do something, God forbid, that's painful or inappropriate, but something that's not regular. And how do you do that? That's commitment. A commitment to join a class, a commitment to give a class, a commitment to charity, a commitment to a cause, a volunteering, but you get into it and you can't get out, you make sure that you are committed. What does that do? You know what it does? It shifts your routine. I'm not suggesting cold turkey, doing something radical, but a shift. The shifts are tremendous forces in our lives because change breeds change. 
And lethargy breeds lethargy. Every moment that you stay in your routine and habit, your routine and habit becomes stronger. But the pattern becomes more etched in stone. That's the nature of doing something. It's like making like a rut. You get into a rut, and every time you go around, the rut gets deeper and deeper. Like a broken record. A shift shifts things. And the shift takes you out of that gravitational pull and the orbit, the regular orbit. Small shifts, small shifts, but, but qualitative ones, take a person away from their past comforts. So if you combine these two tools that I'm describing here, one is facing fear and seeing the darkness and looking how can I tap into it and transform it. Do something about it. You're in a fearful situation, you're afraid of something, you're, you're angry, you're grief, you're mourning, you're seeing someone in pain, you feel helpless. Go do something, establish something. Establish maybe a little group of people, a support group that deals with similar situations. Write a book, work with someone that can write a book. Support a cause that, that, that addresses such challenges. That's, you're taking that energy and you're harnessing it towards something positive. And of course, that also creates a shift because you're doing something that's not comfortable. You're, not, you're doing something that's not what you naturally would do. These, my friends, are the forces that we can use. But it all goes back to having the commitment to what? To the in, in, inherent goodness of yourself, of life, and everything that happens around us. So even when we look at these three weeks and these nine days, yes, on a surface level, there are things we don't do. There's no weddings. There's no celebrations. There's a certain element of grieving. But we know that within it all lies a tremendous amount of good. And that's why when it will be transformed, that's why the ultimate purpose is that it be transformed to celebration and joy. Because that's its real nature. Obviously, if it was not that nature, so why are you transforming it? Just as I said before, eliminate it. No, someone says, I have an enemy. Just get rid of my enemy. It's dark. Shine the light. Let's just absence of dark, of lightness. Just get rid of the enemy. But here there's more. more. There's a, a reason for it. And there's a symptom concealed within it. And there's tremendous power that feeds that symptom, that feeds that concealment. Because remember, for someone that is, has a lot to give, to withhold, to retract, to... Um, to contract symptom, to refrain, takes a lot more energy than to give. Think of a very smart person. It's much harder to restrain yourself than to give because that's natural. So there's a tremendous amount of energy and it's tapped when we transform that darkness, when we realize it's dark and we want that darkness to become light. When we realize our pain, our bitterness of feeling darkness, of feeling distant. These things are meant to turn into positive forces. Now many people, when they feel pain, they feel bitterness, they feel anger, what they usually do, it all turns into negative energy. That feeds the negative energy. What happens? You say, why me? Resentful, you become bitter. You don't look at it this, oh, this is a negative energy meant to, be, to create something positive. It turns you into a negative person. And then what happens? You're just feeding the flames of negativity and it just gets stronger and stronger. Everything negative that happens makes you more negative, makes you more bitter, makes you more 
unkind. And that in turn feeds the negative energy that you exude. How do you reverse the process? You say, one second, I don't want this situation. I do not want to become negative by negative experiences. I want to take a negative experience and turn it into something positive. It's hard to do because the temptation is just to say, why me? And to have self-pity and self-mercy and become self-absorbed. That's the tendency. That's the nature. But that's not necessarily the only option. And it's absolutely not the only option. The other option is you take it and say, okay, what am I going to do with this? This was given to me. What am I going to do with this challenge, with this dark moment, with this, with this uh, sad situation? And when you do that, you actually transform it into good. So you'll see that though we've already been grieving for thousands of years, almost 2,000 years since the Second Temple was destroyed, you don't see the Jewish people being grieving human beings. We may have suffered, but we have not become sufferers. I'm not talking about exceptions. I'm talking about generally we've become builders, filled with hope, filled with vision, filled with a bright future. You see that collectively and individually in so many. How is that possible? It's not just because you're optimistic and you think, you're always thinking good and always looking up. It's because you've learned to understand that the darkness is not the natural state. It's a means to an end. Not always easy to see, but that faith carries us through. So even when it seems completely hopeless, like the moon right before it's born, the new moon, completely hopeless, it's completely dark. It seems like the moon is dead, only to be reborn again. So we see it all in that, in that, with that, through that lens, everything changes. That doesn't mean there's no suffering. That doesn't mean there is no negative. It just means it's not an end in itself. There's the bigger picture. And the bigger picture carries us through and taps in, not just to the absence of light, but into the power and energy that is in the darkness and turns that into a tremendous, a tremendous generator of, of energy and of forward movement and positive growth. And you build the greatest things with that type of energy. That, that even the anger, the grief, creates tremendous surge. You say, I'm going to do something about this. My vengeance will be is to build a family. My vengeance will be to build a life, a community. And all that comes together and turns your personal life and collectively into a tremendous surge that can literally transform the universe. And look at the reality with all that suffering that has taken place in history. Here we are. We live in a world with the least amount of wars, with the least amount of suffering, much less than it's ever been, though there's a ways to go. But we have ultimately prevailed. That today the status, today the standard is a world of good humanitarianism. Not everyone lives up to it, but it's the standard that everybody accepts. And even many of us who may at the moment be doing something that's selfish, we know the selfish is not the, what you would aspire to. It's not what you're going to tell your children, be selfish. You want them to be giving because that's our natural place. So fitting to this period in time, 
We're talking about something that on, on the surface level is a negative, but on the, posi- on the deeper level is a positive. And it tells us about each, each of us as well as human beings, that even when you see a person who may seem to be on the, on the surface level, let's put it this way, not something that you would, um, uh, not something that we would find pleasant. I'm putting it mildly. So obviously you have to protect yourself and you, have, you don't accept behavior that's, un, that's inappropriate or unjust or insensitive. But at the end of the day, you look at the person like we would look at our own children. That inside this person lies a beautiful soul, a pure soul, a beautiful force for good. And look how sad it is that this person has wandered away from their own destiny. Now, when we feel such sadness about ourselves, that is the wake-up call that can change things. Because then you draw down a tremendous amount of compassion from heaven when you recognize that. So recognition and awareness is such a tremendous first step in this process because it shows that you are not allowing the status quo. You're not allowing the, the given situation to control your life. And that leads us to the the final point about this darkness. When things are going well, things are going well. But it's on a regular, let's put it this way, it's a very, it's a regular flow. Regular flow. It's when there's something does not go well, and you dig deeper, and you find new energy in places you'd never imagined it'd be energy. You find light in places you'd never imagined it'd be light. You know what happens? The whole trajectory changes. You no longer just going, chugging along, step by step. You create a revolution. You create a radical revolution. A revolution because what you've done is change the course of things. Now, when darkness strikes you and you don't do anything about it, so the way of all flesh is to give in, to resign. But when you don't give in and you don't resign, you know what you're doing? You're changing the course of things. And when you change the course of things, life changes. So your attitudes can actually change reality. Your reality and the larger reality. All this lies in the power of the darkness that we face, recognizing that within it lies such tremendous potential. So, may God bless each one of us, each one of you, everyone, only with abundant light, with revealed goodness, revealed in a way that each of us appreciates it, But when you do, or should you do, should you face a moment of setback, a moment of shadows, when something comes into your world that evokes fear, when you're trapped in some way, stop, pause, and think about it. Think about this experience. Come to understand and accept that there's some opportunity here. Don't become completely self-consumed and say, oh, why is this happening to me? Which is, of course, the initial reaction. But say, what can I do with this? What can I do? Use it as an opportunity. And tap into it. And if there's something a little negative, or more than a little, learn to channel that. Find someone you can speak to about this, because... Having a good friend, a good mentor, someone you can lean on, someone that can be a little, give you some objectivity and can give you strength and support, 
helps you get out of this trap yourself. Because a person who's in fetters, tied up, can hardly, can usually not untangle themselves. So it's good to have that assistance as well. So may these days actually be transformed into joy and celebration, days of joy and celebration, and to holidays. Deepest form of help, the deepest holidays, the ones that come from the darkness. The greatest light comes from the darkest places. And we should all be blessed only with good things. And please see myself and the Meaningful Life Center as allies, as kindred spirits in this journey. And whatever part of the journey we're on, it's one journey. Sometimes the journey goes a little a dip, sometimes it goes up like the cycles of the moon. It waxes and it wanes, only to be born again and to wax and to wane again. Everyone have a very blessed week. And again, these days should be transformed. And until next Wednesday, be well. Thank you so much.